Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network, and I'd like to tell you that we have a new and improved website. It has two new features that we think you'll love. One of them is a vastly improved search engine so that when you type in keywords, you'll get a bunch of episodes really quick. The other is the ability to create a listener account. And in that listener account, you can save episodes for later listening. So you can create a kind of listening list. We think these features are neat and we think you'll enjoy them. Please visit the site today. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Dozman. When one thinks of your typical horror movie and its usual imagery, a number of tropes may come forward. Graveyards behind old cathedrals, crucifixes and holy water, possessions and exorcisms. The uniting thread of all of these is that they are all tied to the religious. One might then wonder if there is some underlying thread of meaning beneath the facade. Addressing this topic directly is Jonathan Greenaway in his book, Theology, Horror, and Fiction, a reading of the Gothic 19th century. Surveying a number of well-known works from this period, from Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and the Bronte sisters, all the way up to Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray and Bram Stoker's Dracula, Greenaway finds works filled with various references and discussions of religious scripture, imagery, and themes. What's more, he's able to follow these various occasions down into deeper territory, finding a subterranean conversation in much of this literature on themes of embodiment, createdness, epistemology, political institutions, and ethical transgressions. What Greenaway comes away with is insight into a dialogue between these two fields that will be richly rewarding to believers of both of them. Jonathan Greenaway, welcome to the New Books Network. Uh, Thank you so much for uh, having me on. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, to start things off, I always like to have guests introduce themselves at the beginning. So for people who aren't familiar with you, could you tell us just a little bit about your work and research, what your main areas of focus and interest are? Yeah, absolutely. So um, my name is John Greenaway. I have a PhD from the Manchester Centre for Gothic Studies, and I work on the intersections of the Gothic and horror from the 1700s to the present with both um, theology and religion and um, radical emancipatory politics like Marxism. Uh, So I am uh, trying to work across uh, kind of three different fields, teasing out the ways in which uh, the Gothic and horror serve as this really important cultural mode of production that allows for the exploration of some of the non-material fears and anxieties of capitalist modernity. 
Yeah, that's a really interesting intersection to be working with. And we're going to tease out a lot of that over the next hour, I think. So to kick things off uh, with this book, so often when scholars attempt to tease out the religious or theological themes in a particular figure or field, there can sometimes be a temptation to collapse the two into each other, or to say that said zone or figure was really in some way religious all along, um, albeit in some secret way. Um, but you try to avoid such a reduction, instead letting theology and Gothic literature highlight each other without letting the differences and tensions disappear. So to start, could you speak to the broad strokes of your project with this book? Uh, what are you hoping to show us about Christian theology and the Gothic by putting them in dialogue? Yeah, so the Gothic as a form is super interesting. Um the Anglophone Gothic is usually given the starting date of the 1760s, and this is where um, Horace Walpole, the son of the British Prime Minister of the time, publishes the novel The Castle of Otranto. Um, and this is so immediately then, the and this is the kind of foundational text of the Gothic. What what kind of gets referred to as the kind of the the, the high point of um, the Gothic is about 1760 to 1820, and is really shaped by things like. Walpole's The Castle of Otranto. Um, and so from the outset, the Gothic is like very close to the centre of political power, right? It's written by the son of the British Prime Minister. It's very concerned with questions of national identity. But it's important to point out that those questions of national identity are inextricably bound up within religious questions. Because so often the Gothic presents a kind of ra politically radical and religiously Catholic Europe um, against a sort of sober, rationalist, sensible Protestant England. Um, so really what you have are, are kind of theological politics at work from the, from the outset. And so the aim of this project is basically to argue that the Gothic functions as a space in which the normative theological and religious discourses of the long 19th century are... Um, Put, put to the test, as it were. So the 19th century is um, really a moment of theological and religious crisis. Uh, the, the kind of landmark book on this is J. Hillis Miller's The Disappearance of God, which I refer to in the book. And so Hillis Miller saw that, that 19th century writers were wrestling with uh, various crises, like in a rising secularism, the, the problem of Darwinism, uh, the problem of new scholarship that cast doubt upon a literal interpretation of scripture and so on and so forth, um, religious nonconformism. Um, but the, the kind of point really is that if the if religion disappears from the 19th century realist novel, then it is absolutely a central part of the kind of dark shadow of modernity, which is the Gothic novel. So the aim of the book really is to try and position religious and theological discourses as central to the concerns of Gothic and horror writing in the 19th century without making the mistake of retroactively baptizing these novels as kind of Christian all along. In fact, I think it's far healthier for uh, any kind of approach to religion and the arts or theology and the arts to allow for uh, traffic to go in both directions, as it were. So, a lot of the time you end up with a problem of people going, oh, this is really about religion or really this fits into a kind of neat 
uh, position that Christian orthodoxy reflects. And really what I want to try and do is encourage people to think about the arts as having things to say back to religious and theological modes of thought. Um, it might be worth maybe teasing out the distinctions between religion and theology as I use them in the book as well. Yeah, that was my next question. So we can go on to that. So you do note in the book's introduction that the title of your book is Theology, Horror, and Fiction, uses the word theology, not religion. So most people listening might uh, automatically kind of assume that those are just two words for the same thing, but you argue that there's a crucial difference. Uh, You see religion as being concerned more with uh, aspects such as symbolism and ritual, whereas theology is a more systematic account of reality that tries to dig a bit deeper. Could you explain this difference and the implications it has uh, for your study here? Yeah, um, and I think it's maybe it's maybe important to point out that both of these things can be systematic in different ways, right? So a, a spatial metaphor is perhaps helpful, um, and I'm going to borrow I'm going to borrow this distinction from the British theologian Graham Ward, who writes in their book writes about this in their book True Religion, um, and so what Ward argues is that religion. Um, you know, the Latinate is the legato uh, or legislation has a similar root. And it's about that which kind of ties together a social body. Uh, And yes, so symbolism has a big part to play in this. Ritual has a big part to play in this, but also maybe more diffuse ideas like um, normative standards of behavior. Uh, The social rules of a particular moment can be quite religious. Um, and that's certainly the certainly the case in a kind of capitalist society, right? The normative rules, the Protestant ethic um, is, is very deeply ingrained. And that's a religious problem. Um, theology then is a kind of, is concerned with the non-material. So if the religious is that which ties together the horizontal plane, theology is that which mediates the vertical plane, right? Between, between the material world of, of people and uh, the non-material, the divine as it is understood. Um, And I think it's important to think about the fact that quite a lot of the time scholars of literature have preferred to talk about religion because religion is less, is is in a sense, less philosophically uh, messy. Um, And it's very easy to ground things in people's actions, right? If we can point to oh, people are doing this, but they're doing it for religious reasons. But generally, you didn't have one without the other. Action was always motivated by idea, right? Idea was the theological motivation for why people behaved in certain ways. Um, and I think that's a really important distinction to, 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 to make. And the importance of, of that distinction is that it means that you're not just doing sociology of history. You're not just kind of like trying to track down why people performed certain actions, but we're trying to get closer to what what was the metaphysics that undergird a particular historical moment, and how does a particular understanding of theology affect how we interpret the kind of concrete materiality of history? Yeah, moving along, uh, before digging through any particular texts, um, I'd like to ask where the Gothic came from. We've already alluded to this a bit, um, but uh, I'd like to ask that not just in terms of its best known tropes, but the world it was born into. Specifically, what key social or political tensions was Gothic literature an attempt to respond and wrestle with? What should listeners kind of understand as the social background as they kind of listen to this conversation develop? Yeah, I, I, again, I think um, I think the relationship between 
and again, I, I, I'm going to keep kind of reiterating this point, but to talk about theology is to talk about politics and vice versa. So firstly, you have the relationship between Britain and the European continent. Britain is Protestant. Um, at the time, the continent is very close to revolution. The French Revolution is 1789. Um, there are genuine fears of revolution in, in England. Um, and so Gothic novels are full of um catholic monks and nuns and um you know the wild landscapes of spain and italy um so the world that it's born into is one of of huge instability there are there are huge kind of crises unfolding but at the same time there's also the emergence of british imperialism the 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 settling of the question of british national political identity there is the slow unfolding of the british catholic emancipation act there are all of these moments in which British um, imperial hegemony establishes itself globally. So in terms of its... Um, I, I should stress, actually, one other thing to point out is that the Gothic was phenomenally popular. Phenomenally popular. Um, because another really important point is that you have an emergence of a kind of reading public for the first time. So there is a general level of education and there is an interest in, and there's technological advances that means that printing is relatively cheap. Uh, Coleridge very famously dismisses lots, lots of the Gothic as the trash of the circulating libraries. Um, you know, the penny dreadfuls and the, this cheap mass produced uh, commodity that found a kind of low middle class, um, predominantly female readership. Um, there was a lot of kind of uh, moral concern about women reading the wrong kind of novels. It's a, it's a kind of huge plot point in Jane Austen's famous Gothic satire, Northanger Abbey, uh, which comes out in, what, 1815, I believe, just a, just a few years around the same time as Frankenstein is published. So the world is one of huge change um, and, and huge instability, but also the kind of enforcement of certain norms. In terms of the content of the Gothic, Generally, so generally, um, there are a few kind of key characteristics that come up in the first wave of Gothic novels, which is a European setting, um, a the supernatural, often it's explained, sometimes it's not, uh, mysterious religion, um, and an interest in antiquarianism, an interest in the past. To put it, so to put it very simply, the Gothic is, if the 19th century is the era of modernity, right, it's where the modern world establishes itself in a form that we would recognise. The Gothic is a kind of violent, um, religiously uh, and theologically extreme moment of history re-emerging into the present. The Gothic is about destabilization. Um, and speaks to a kind of uh, a feeling of, of yeah, a feeling of anxiety. Um, so there are a couple of kind of key um, uh, aesthetic debates that happen around the Gothic. Edmund Burke writes about the Gothic, you know, the father of contemporary conservatism. Um, and there is a distinction made between uh, terror and horror which Burke locates in a kind of aesthetic sublimity. So terror is that which um, kind of heightens the soul, as it were, and horror is that which you retreat from. And these two things get kind of get worked out kind of dialectically as the form refines itself and expands and experiments and hybridizes in, in various ways. But I think that's, um, that's a good kind of overview. 
Yeah, that brings us up kind of through the introduction. So in the first proper chapter of the book, you look at Mary Shelley's novel, Frankenstein, but in order to understand it, you refer to two earlier texts, uh, Milton's Paradise Lost and the biblical book of Job. So examining these two texts enables you to tease out the way in which Shelley is engaging in this very theologically sophisticated conversation about the relationship between a divine creator and their material creation. Could you unpack this conversation and how Shelley is trying to engage with it? Yeah, so the argument is um, is very briefly that Frankenstein is, despite its subtitle of the modern Prometheus, um, which is very important, Frankenstein is essentially a, a restaging of Paradise Lost. Um, and the big ethical question is in an era where it is possible to remake the world, what are the various responsibilities that carries? Um, in a way, it's quite a cutting satire of that first generation of romantics that Shelley was um, known to and involved with, as these uh, visionary geniuses like Victor who can unlock the secrets of, of all flesh but refuse to take responsibility for what they bring into being. Um I think the key moment of the novel, for, from from my point of view, is the central uh, narrative where Victor and his creature meet face to face in the in the Alps, and uh, the kind of shock of the novel for Victor is that this creature that he despises, made as it is out of the vivisected remains of the poor and the working class, um, can speak to him in these educated Enlightenment. Um, philosophical terms that Victor himself sees as his own exclusive domain. Um, for Victor, the scariest thing about Frankenstein's about Frankenstein is that the creature speaks back. The monster has a voice. Um, I'm actually in the book. I'm very reticent to to refer to the creature as a monster um, because monster is not a natural category. Monster is a constructed category that has various theological, religious, and political overtones to it. Um, so. Essentially, um, what is it that any of us want? What is the kind of big existential question um, that drives a, a lot of kind of... And I think there are echoes here in contemporary theory, especially in debates around things like recognition. Um, you know, Nancy Fraser's written about right about the, the problem of, of recognition uh, and mutual recognition being constitutive of subjectivity, right? Um, and what... To, to, to be a monster is always to be made into a monster, it's it is it's a it's a category that is um, both naturalized and at the same time entirely you know it's made to seem natural but that's not the same thing as it being natural. So um, the aim of this is to kind of like get away from the image of I think for, I think for too long in kind of common interpretations of the novel we've bought Victor's side of the story, um, and I think the aim is to go actually all life has a kind of, there is a, there is a sort of metaphysics that's happening here. Even, even life that's ripped out of the grave, this has a kind of consciousness and that demands a um, religious or a kind of, I suppose in general terms, ethical response. The reason I kind of frame this in, in religious terms is because that's what Victor does. Victor frames what he's doing religiously and theologically. Um, if you if you've read the novel, you'll know that when he's a student, he goes off to university, and um, he's enrolled uh, in these medical and, and anatomy courses. But he reads Paracelsus, he reads alchemists, he is a hermetic theologian 
who is trying to unlock the miracle of life. He's not doing medicine, right? So um, basically, it's so striking when you start reading the novel, how often Victor refers to the creature as a demon and a devil, um, something that's come from the pit of hell to torment him. And I'm like, I, th- I think really that's the crux of my interest, which is like, what does it mean to make something demonic or to position something as demonic? And how does this intersect with, you know, Shelley's broader involvement with romanticism um, and her own uh, recuperation and reuse of things like Milton's Paradise Lost? I don't know about you, but I'm very busy and I don't have a lot of time to cook. That's why I subscribe to Factor. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. These are two-minute meals. Factor meals are ready to eat in heat, so there's no prepping, cooking, or cleanup needed. They're flexible for your schedule. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast premium options with no cooking required. Sign up and save. We've done the math, and this is important. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. Head to factormeals.com NBN50 and use code NBN50 to get 50% off. That's code NBN50 at factormeals.com slash nbn50 to get 50% off. Shipping can make or break a sale, so optimize how you ship your orders with ShipStation. They make it easy to automate and manage orders no matter how big your business grows. And they might even be able to help reduce shipping and warehouse costs. So optimize and keep up your momentum for growth with ShipStation. Sign up for your free 60-day trial now at ShipStation.com and use the code POD. That's ShipStation.com with the code POD. Yeah, in the second chapter, you follow some theological accounts of the relation between the material and immaterial. What follows is a particular account of revelation-based epistemology, which leaves us with a destabilized notion of an ethically accountable subject. This, you argue, is uh, a key theme of James Hoggs's The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner. Could you unpack the line of thinking and how you see the novel working through it? Yeah, so Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner is a fascinating book. Uh, it's very short. It's very strange. Um, so Hogg is writing from the background of kind of Scottish Reformed theology, very Calvinist theology. Um, Shelley is more of a romantic. Um, Hogg is very much enmeshed in those kind of cultural debates. Um, and I think it's important to point out what that means. So if the historical veracity of the religious record has, comes into doubt, you need a way of securing faith. Um, you can do this through the grounds of rational argument, but this was also very problematic. Or you can do this through revelation. Revelation is great because it solves the it solves the it solves the problem of reason. Can you reason someone into faith? Um, so revelation does an awful lot of work, and it's very present in um, it's very present in a lot of the Cal- what's called the Calvinist Gothic. So the problem of revelation is broadly this: um, the world is inherently deceptive. Um, the world is fallen, and so there is. Um, 
there are these moments in which the truth of the world can be seen behind it, as it were. The world is haunted by possibility. And so Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner has this, and what this, it, in the novel, it raises this horrible question of the destabilization of identity. Do you know who you really are? Um, and what does it mean to be told that you are a completely justified sinner? So for people who don't know, in Calvinism, uh, there is this notion of um, total depravity and and um, y- we are completely fallen. We're completely beyond the grace of God. Uh, the famous example here is the American um, preacher, Jonathan Edwards, and the famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, you know, all are deserving of destruction. However, there are the limited number of elect, those who are predestined to be saved from annihilation. Um, and so the question is, if you knew that you were going to be saved no matter what you do, what does you are kind of free, but you're free in the worst possible way because you're no longer ethically accountable at all. Uh, the inverse is also true. This was Byron's own understanding of himself. Uh, this idea of like, well, if you know that you're not one of the elect, it doesn't matter what you do because you can't change anything about your eternal fate. Um, so, uh, yeah, very broadly, that's that's that, that's the kind of line of argument that I take, and that draws off. Um, it draws off uh, quite a lot of uh, the Scottish writing, Scottish ghost stories. Um, it's a big theme in a lot of Robert Louis Stevenson's work. And um, even though it, this was originally part of a PhD, so in my PhD I also wrote about um, some American writers who uh, came out of Protestant um, and Puritan New England, because there you see the same kind of destabilization. A really good example is um, Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, Young Goodman Brown which follows a good devout person who wanders off into the world. But the world, the natural world is not beautiful. The natural world conceals Satan, right? Behind the world, when you're outside of the ordained authority of God, there are all kinds of like spiritual problems that have to be fought. Um, and this is this is why that kind of Calvinist epistemology is so kind of fascinating to me. Yeah, in the third chapter, you look at the Bronte sisters, particularly Emily and Charlotte, who have a well-known critique of religion, although you explore the way in which it is more specifically a critique of religion's institutional form and social role in the ways it is at times divided by its own ideas, some of which aid power while others might inspire emancipation. Could you unpack this critique the Brontes develop and the tensions that it reveals? Yeah, I think they're a really good example of something that I have written about post this book, which is this notion of Gothic heresy. Um, and so for me, heresy is a very interesting religious and theological category because it's a point of destabilizing what you think is true, but it's also the point where you see new ideas come into being. So I remember I was writing this chapter. Again, this was also a chapter in my PhD. And I sent it to my supervisor and they they read it and they, they said, why are you avoiding the fact that they were controversial at the time? You know, you're trying to excuse them and go, actually, no, they were just doing good theology. And it's like, no, they weren't. They were, they were heretics. They were, they were condemned for, for being like quite kind of shockingly heretical. And I was sort of like, yeah, but that's not a problem. Not really. And that allows you to have these kind of interesting conversations. So Emily Bronte, uh, her poetry especially is actually full of, deeply devoutly religious and theological ideas um obviously the brontes were raised in a parsonage um their father was a was a minister but they are in no way kind of orthodox or straightforward in their religiousness um 
there's something kind of wonderfully incomplete about Wuthering Heights. Um, this idea of actually, it, it you don't find the divine. It, so in the previous chapter, you can't go into the natural world because the like the supernatural is there. It can be deceptive. However, for Emily Bronte, you can't go into church because God is not there. Where God is, is in the natural world. There is a natural theology that's happening. Um, Jane Eyre is interesting because it's, in some ways it's a lot more of a political book. Um, even though there are definitely political uh, themes and issues in Wuthering Heights, but um, Charlotte Bronte kind of addresses a lot more of the the kind of re- the ways in which religious and theological discourse has a disciplinary function, right? Jane is constantly told not to rise above her station because it's ordained by God. Um, but actually, Jane Jane takes seriously a lot of the religious and theological tradition that the 19th century was ignoring. Uh, particular, and I think there's a very kind of revealing example of this in the book. Right at the beginning, when she's very young, um, she has a conversation with a, a local, you know, awful priest uh, minister comes to, comes to the house of her aunt and is told that, like, it's her duty as a good Christian uh, to be good and to be well behaved. But what Jane prefers from the Bible is not the stories of punishment. What she prefers is the stories of Exodus, right, which is a liberatory story. It's, it's a kind of proto-liberation theology. Um, and a sort of preferential option for the poor, as it were. So um, I think that's, a, a, yeah, again, a very sort of brief, rapid overview of of why these two books are so kind of central to these um, various debates that are starting to take on more sophistication by the time we get into the, the, the middle of the 19th century. Yeah, in the fourth chapter, you look at a number of ghost stories, trying to see what the ghost represents. So in some cases, the ghost is a remnant of the spiritual in an increasingly secular and materialistic world, a refusal on the part of the universe to be entirely explicable, although this at times can be a critique of theology as much as science. Rather than just this critique of scientific rationalism, the ghost can also haunt those who might try to develop this more bourgeois, respectable form of theology. Could you unpack the dual role the ghost often plays here? Yeah, and I think a good way of thinking about this is the ghost is a symbol of loss. They are echoes of something. Um, ghosts are tragic figures, right? They're, they are they are the record of what is no longer. Um, and I think... In, in, in a sense in a sense i think this is maybe the most kind of deridian that i get which is this notion that actually the ghost is both an absent presence and a present absence um and thus i you know in a sort of maybe an overly simplistic way it's a kind of call for an embracing of the ambiguity of the non-material um i think a, i think a really good line I think it's actually a Zizek line is that the world is not just kind of flat phenomenal objects, right? The world, or as Ernst Bloch would put it, the world is not just dumb matter. It's not just stuff. Um, there is, there is, you know, it, it, this can be as simple as like, you know, the, a tool and it's at handedness to us or where it becomes something more than an object or because of our own relationship to that object, it becomes transformed. And I think the ghost is a really good, um, means of introducing that kind of like phenomenological surplus to our understanding right so instead of instead of death being a simply material process it becomes a kind of psychological or psychic one or 
religion seeing the dead is kind of neatly separated from us. The Gothic ghost story can actually reintroduce the dead to the world of the living. And the question becomes, how do you relate to them? Um, a really good, a really good um, kind of contemporary example of this would be something like John Berger's famous piece on the economy of the dead, where it he kind of calls for this renewed um, ethics of responsibility in a way. You know, we often think of ourselves as responsible to the future, but for Berger, for Benjamin, for Bloch, for quite a lot of the kind of like more theologically minded Marxists, we have a responsibility to the past as well. Yeah, in the final chapter of the book, you look at several novels and the ways they play with moral and epistemological limitations, the ways both are subject to rewiring for both good and ill. So there is this generalized fear of the beyond, but also this desire to transgress, to cross boundaries and push forward. Uh, Beyond this, you add there's a rich theological thread running through this tension and that a full understanding of it requires wrestling with the theological aspects of it. So could you tell us about some of these novels and what you see going on in them here? Yeah, so I think the final chapter, if I remember right, is concerned with Jekyll and Hyde, the picture of Dorian Gray and uh, Bram Stoker's Dracula, all of which are... um, like intensely bound up with religious ideas at a time when quite a lot of contemporary scholarship takes for granted the increasing secularity or, or even non-interestedness in religion. Um, Jekyll and Hyde is often minimized for, uh, has its religious and theological content minimized. Um, instead, a lot of these novels are read through very strictly and in some ways very reductionist materialist terms, right? Um, tied up with discourses around degeneration or evolution or, um, you know, Lombardo and criminology. And I think all of that is fine, but it actually misses a lot of the, the actual content of the novel, um, particularly Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde is about someone who is drawn to something despite knowing that it's the very worst possible thing they could do. Um, and it raises not just, it's not it's not simply a novel of like scientific problems. It's a novel of, of like Henry Jekyll believes they've imperiled their soul right? They believe they kind of split themselves apart. Um, and there are, and this is, this is a very old and very kind of, um, deep seated religious theological question. Uh, the picture of Dorian Gray, again, is about the question of the soul. Dracula, I think in some ways is the most interesting novel. Um, and in, and restages quite a lot of the oldest Gothic theological and religious problems. Cause what is it about? It is about a, uh, radical from Europe, coming to the center of the empire to buy up property, which is met with a combination of uh, violence and religious invective. Um, Van Helsing is supposed to be a scientist. Van Helsing comes off like a proto Damien Karras from the exorcist, right? Like what, what does he say to Dr. John Seward? He says, I want you to believe, I want you to have faith. And how do we deal with the, with the rich, uh, European who comes to the centre of the British Empire. We turn them back with Winchester rifles, you know, the symbol of American modernity, and you turn them back with crucifixes, right? Those, that, that, those are the two key things that the, the self-described crew of light take up in order to kind of deal with uh, this invader. So not only, again, is it not only a political problem, it is it explicitly the texts position themselves as having religious and theological concerns. And I think perhaps people might be a little skeptical of this, which I, you know, I completely understand and accept. But I think a really good way of kind of introducing this way of reading is to think these novels are full of 
crucifixes, ghosts, demons, devils, uh, prayer, miracles, and all of them, you can dismiss all of that as simple aesthetics, right? But actually, I think that's a mistake. Actually, I think there is a genuine, there is genuine semantic content to what the, this is used for. Um, and it's about kind of excavating that meaning um, in a way that doesn't try and reduce its ambiguity and contradiction, but accepts those contradictions as both uh, as necessary to what the novels are trying to do. Yeah, in closing, so now that you've allowed these two fields, theology and Gothic literature, to uh, speak at length to one another, uh, I think it's worth kind of teasing out some concluding thoughts. So first of all, you argue that the Gothic represents in many ways a deep challenge to theology, one that religious believers ought to take seriously, even if critically. So what do you hope believers and theologians take seriously about the Gothic? What do you see it trying to say to them or offering them? So there's um, there's someone I quote quite at uh, length in the book, uh, uh, the British Anglican theologian David Brown, who has written extensively on theology and the arts. So there's a lecture David Brown gives called The Arts Critique of Theology. Um, and in it, he kind of argues against what he refers to as exceptionalism, which is this idea of using theological categories to say that a certain work of art is good of its type. Right. This one is the exceptional one and it's exceptional for these theological reasons. But what he tries to argue for and what I think is necessary is to be like, actually, the arts can critique theology. And this is not simply a um, this is not simply a historical issue. Right. It's not simply mounting a critique of the historical 19th century religious and theological ideas, even though it definitely is engaged with that. But those themes and concerns are still resonating and are still kind of circulating culturally. And I think uh, my overall aim is that like to position this form of writing as one, which is uh, heretical, heretical in the productive sense of the term. Um, after working on this book, I, I spent two years like investigating what, what horror fans actually thought about the theological and religious content of horror and there is compelling statistical evidence that suggests, actually, even without any religious affiliation, even without any kind of self-professed theological, religious or spiritual commitment, people do tend to recognise and respond to the um, religious and theological themes of these novels and later on films. And I think that's that poses both a problem and an opportunity because it seems there is content within, these, within this form, within this... Um, uh, mode of cultural production that is uh, both engaging with and critiquing the sort of culturally diffuse normative notions of what what it means to be uh, religious or to be interested in theological ideas. Um, so basically, I would hope that uh, sort of those who uh, would call themselves religious or invested in a certain kind of theological or set of religious commitments uh, recognize that the the idea of making exclusive claims like doesn't hold anymore right there is this realm of culture where uh, often often derided often seen as low culture often seen as morally questionable wherein um, these issues and questions of theology and religion get worked out in often very surprising ways and that is worth paying attention to yeah, so uh, you alluded to this a bit, but to reverse the question, what would you hope that readers of Gothic literature or maybe just horror more broadly 
absorb of the theological thread running through this field? What gets missed when we read Gothic works uh, without attentiveness to this theological element? And what does bringing it back into focus do for our understanding of it? Yeah, I think the thing that's worth pointing out is that religion, um, religion, theology, and the Gothic or horror try and concern them, like our focus on, you know, what might get in quite old fashioned language get called matters of ultimate concern. Um, and I think reading it historically um, means that the past becomes somewhat inaccessible to us. Reading it materialistically is very helpful because it recognizes the ways in which uh, the theological and the political are, are kind of corollaries in many ways. But I think recognizing the kind of continued investment in these issues um, on a, often on a very deep imaginative level on a deep, on a very deep personal level for, uh, for readers is really important. Um, the stakes, the stakes are higher if you, if you read it this way, right? The, rather than these people being fools who are making bad decisions, it's, it, it becomes a lot kind of deeper and richer. And if you recognize that, like, to be interested in questions of the soul or to be interested in questions of the supernatural, of what ghosts really mean, of, of things like possession even, does not require uh to one to be committed to a set of like religious dogmas or orthodoxies um i think people can be very pleasantly surprised at the ways in which um these 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 novels and maybe later films can take on new significance for them yeah that's a good note to end on so as a final question i always like to ask is there anything you're working on now any new projects or directions you can pitch and promote yeah absolutely so um this next year i have two books forthcoming um, so something that I've been increasingly interested in, and I think it's probably present in the conclusion to the book, is the idea of like emancipatory or utopian politics. So my first book is uh, that will be coming in the spring next year is called A Primer on Utopian Philosophy, an introduction to the work of Ernst Bloch, um, and is a kind of general, short, very readable, very... Um, entry-level way into the work of a thinker who I think is... Um, very sadly little read and uh, not very well understood. Uh, the Marxist, uh, critic, atheist, theologian, um, philosopher of revolution, um, and someone who is well worth paying attention to in this moment of various uh, poly crises. Um, the second book I have coming out is one called uh, Capitalism Horror Story, uh, Gothic Marxism and the Dark Side of the Radical Imagination. And this is taking some of those Blockian utopian ideas and reading contemporary horror film through them. Um, I often feel like horror is seen as very uh, negative and often quite depressing. And I think there is a place for that, but I actually think what seeing that as the exclusive domain of horror means that horror is a great site of finding, finding hope that is not bought on the cheap um, hope that takes seriously the, the kind of the gravity of the situation that we're in um, and is incredibly useful imaginative fuel or as a catalyst for um, for kind of rebuilding and reconstructing and revivifying the Marxist and socialist imagination. Yeah, you've got some really interesting intersections there. So we'll look forward to that. So in the meantime, Jonathan Greenaway, thank you so much for coming on. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for having me.
Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.